What started my affair was a friendship. I recognized my feelings, that I was attracted and excited when this person would call. Um, he was a very positive, encouraging, happy all the time person that was fun to talk to, fun to be around. Um, and I knew that my feelings were wrong. And I was good friends with his wife. And I dealt with that for a while, for a good year. And I didn't tell a soul. And one day I just admitted that I was attracted to him. And I was thinking I was doing the right thing. I know now it was a mistake to tell him I was attracted to him and that we shouldn't talk anymore. Um, because he called me again that afternoon. And I just knew. I was too excited when he called back. I knew it was wrong. So therefore, I guess I was justifying it. I deserve this. I deserve to be happy. Maybe it was a mistake. Maybe my marriage was a mistake. And I bought the lies that my children would be fine, that I'd be happier, that life would be better. Our children were neglected. That's one thing that I can't take back is that all of the hard work that we had done together as parents and all of the love we had poured into them um, for a long time, I know that they just didn't get everything they needed. Um, I lied about where I was going, created errands that didn't really exist. The friendship that she had with this person was, you know, too obvious. And I asked them to stop communicating, and they did. Or it appeared as if they did. I was hiding it very well. We came home from church, and uh, she asked me for a divorce, and I thought, we just dedicated a child to the Lord, and now you're asking me for a divorce. There's something wrong here. So I was still dealing in, not dealing in the truth when I asked him for a divorce. I thought I was going to have everything my way. We were going to get divorced, and I was going to go and live this happy ever after. But yeah, there was a point where I realized I just need to tell him and set him free and tell him the truth because I could see the pain that I was causing him by making him feel like it was all him. I was completely broken, broken in half. And he saw it. I knew. Um, I knew that it had to come out. The guilt and the feeling of being so far away from God. I was telling myself I was going to be a better mommy if I got out of my marriage. That they were going to see the real happy me, broken free of all the chains that was, you know, plaguing me while I was in this marriage. But I realized I was seeking God. I wanted him to, what I was looking for was for him to tell me, it's okay. Yeah, there's a clause in there in the Bible where your circumstance fits in there and you're going to be okay. But I didn't feel it in my spirit. I knew I had to be honest. I knew I had to have the truth. God's name was David. He is one of the genuine, bona fide, unquestioned heroes of the Bible. When he was a kid, he walked out into a valley and went man to man with a giant who was nine feet tall. And all David had was a slingshot and a bag of rocks. You are a manly man when, as a teenager, you do something like that. He became a successful soldier, a general, and then he became king of Israel. He was Israel's greatest king, no doubt about it. But beyond being a great soldier and a great general and a great king, he was a man with a soft side, a poetic side. And when you open your Bible to the largest book, which, which is called Psalms, it just means songs, the lion's share of those songs are written by David, and the most well-known is one that is quoted many times by many people. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff comforts me. When Jesus came to the world a thousand years later, the one person that Jesus associated himself with this man, 
In fact, Jesus was called the son of David. He is no doubt a hero. If there was a hall of fame in the Bible, David would be in the first, first hallway. If there was a Mount Rushmore in the Bible, David's image would be there. But as with some of our sports heroes today, there is an asterisk by David's name, wherever you find it listed among all the great things that he did. And if you look below that asterisk, you'll find this line. He slept with another man's wife, and he had her husband killed. I know the Bible is God's word. I don't question it for many reasons. But among the myriad reasons why I know the Bible is God's word is God never attempts to sugarcoat the failings of the heroes or the heroines. God tells it like it is. And a good bit of space, a good bit of press coverage in the Bible is given to David and why he went wrong and what happened in his life. How could it happen? I I don't see David being a guy that has a problem with this. I mean, you you know already, if you've seen the title of today's message, it's called The Affair. You know I'm going to talk about affairs. You know that from the get-go. And somebody could say, well, Mark, I know somebody who just goes from one affair to the next. That's a serial adulterer. I want you to know that's not who I'm talking about today. Because the Bible says someone who is a serial adulterer is just on the wrong side of God and they're headed for a bad destination. But I'm talking about somebody who has an affair and it's an aberration. It's, it's, it's inconsistent. You hear about that as somebody having an affair and you're saying, wow, I, I never saw that in him. I, I didn't see that coming with her. And that's how it was with David, because you don't see that David, you know, has this problem before he falls into this black hole, and you don't see it happening afterward. It's not that he's chasing women all the time. It's just that he has this, he has this, this bad place in his life where he does these awful things. I think that happens to many people, sometimes Christ followers, God followers. I, I, I know I have minister friends who've fallen in this same thing. So I think today it it would be wise for us to back away for a little bit and ask the question, why? Somebody could say, well, Mark, I know why people get into adultery. It's sex. And, you know, it's it's pretty easy. I mean, it's out there. The temptation is there. And they fall. And, And I know what adultery is. It's sleeping with somebody who's not your partner. What I want to share with you today is that adultery is so much more complex than that. I'm a simple guy. And for those of you who've listened to me speak for 22 years or even shorter times, you know I'm a very simple person. I'm not a smart guy. So today for me to tell you from the get-go that it's complex, that's a struggle for me. But I want to tell you today that adultery is a complex thing, and you and I need to know what's going down when somebody is getting close to getting into this sin. Could I tell you today that adultery has six stages? And, and, and trust me, I, I'm not trying to give you a list because I'm ADHD and I hate lists. And the moment anybody tells me they have a list for me, it makes me want to kick something solid because it's just my, my nature that once I've heard the first one and I move on to the second one, I forget the first one. I just hate lists. But today I need to give you one because this is not a made-up list. I didn't just like say, well, I need six points to my sermon, which, by the way, always freaks me when a minister says he has six points to his sermon because I start hoping that I have lunch, you know, with me here. Uh, I just want you to know today that there are six clearly defined stages to an affair. And you and I need to know what they are, and David's going to tell us about all of them. So let's just plunge right in today and, and look at them. If you have your Bibles in 2 Samuel chapter 11, it gives us the, the ugly story. You know, it's one of those chapters in the Bible. If I'm reading 2 Samuel, I think, Lord, can I skip this chapter? Because, I mean, I'm reading about David, and he's just rocking and rolling. And I'm thinking, wow, I'd like to just skip this, but I don't get that privilege. So here we are in verse 1, and we're going to see the very first step 
to getting into an affair. In the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab, that was his commanding general, and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Just a real quick fly over here. David was a soldier. He wasn't an administrator. He wasn't a button-down wingtip kind of guy. He was strictly black leather jacket and blue jeans and cowboy boots. He was a man's man. He was a soldier. That was what he did. You don't give David an adding machine. You don't give David a computer. You just give David a sword and turn him loose. He is a soldier. Even though he's a king, that is what he is and what he does. But now David is in the Middle Ages. You ever hear of a midlife crisis? Well, man, David is writing the book on one. He has been so blessed, he has been so successful, that when the spring rolls around and it's time to trot the armies out and do a little business to make sure that the country is secure, David is saying, you know what, I think, I, you know, it's like Huey Lewis in the news, what I need here is a couple days off. I'm just going to sit on top of the palace and I'm going to just rest and chill, and this time I'm going to send the army out. Now, I know this may take a little imagination for you to sync up with me because I haven't said anything about sex, have I? I mean, no one's gotten into bed with anybody else in verse 1. Only one thing has happened. But pay close attention to it because remember this. The Holy Spirit, when God, God gave us the Bible, the Holy Spirit wanted that to be verse, the first part of the story here. To help you understand why David got into this black hole. What did he do? He's stage one. He stopped doing what he did. We have an expression today, and it's a good one. It's called, do what you do. That's very, very important. Because here's the thing. Think about this. I've already shared with you, this was an anomaly for David. This was an aberration. This is a side trip. This is not who David is. David, when he falls into bed with this woman and has her husband killed, he's out of character. And and we're left scratching our heads trying to figure out how it happened. But remember this. This is an axiom of life. When you stop doing what you do, you'll forget who you are, and you'll start acting out of character. You find, you show me any person who gets off track and does something really wrong, and long before they do whatever it is that makes the newspaper, I will tell you this, somewhere back along the way, they stopped doing what they do. The first stage of an affair or any mess up in life is getting out of sync with your purpose. Every one of us, starting with yours truly, needs to know why we're here on this planet. And then we need to do what we do. You know, all of us want, you know, there's this fantasy of thinking, wow, if I could just get out of the rain, if I could just get out from under this pressure, if I could just, you know, be free to go to some desert island someplace and just chill and never have to, you know, get up with the alarm clock and never have to face difficult people and never have to work for a boss who's a jerk, if I could just get out of all this, I could really enjoy life. Did you know that might be the very worst thing that could happen to you? Because when we stop doing what we do, we forget who we are. What is your purpose? What did God put you here to do? If you know what it is, do it. Somebody could say, well, Mark, I don't know what I've been put here for yet. I'm still going to college. I'm still in school. Or I'm at a job that's kind of an in-between job. It's not my career. It's not my destiny. How do I know what I do? Listen, the Bible tells us God's purpose for every human being. And if you fulfill God's purpose for every human being, you will never screw up. Here's what it is. It's, it's found in the book of Micah, chapter 6, verse 8. You don't have to turn there right now, but if you're, if, you're, if you're taking notes, you might want to look this up later on. Israel is really getting on the wrong side of God, and God's calling them to task for it. And so Israel is saying, well, oh, we know how we'll get right with God. We'll just, like, bring all these animals for sacrifice. And we'll bring all kinds of olive oil to pour out as an offering before God. And they're saying, we know how to get back right with God. And God said, did I ask you for that? 
God says, here's what I want. Listen, listen, this is so cool. This is everybody's purpose. If you will do this, you will never screw up. God says, my purpose for everybody is this, that you do right, that you love mercy, and that you walk humbly with your God. Those are the three things that God wants from every one of us. That's what God wants from Mark. Do right. Hey, it's not complicated. You know, most of life is not gray areas. Most of life is just going right down the highway, doing right. God said, I want you to do right. I want you to love being merciful to other people. And then I want you to walk humbly before me. And if you do those things, you never have to worry about messing your life up. You never have to worry about telling your wife something you don't want to tell her, asking her, telling her she needs to get a sexually transmitted disease test. You never have to tell your kids that you've really messed up everything. So, number one, do what you do. David has quit doing what he does. He's a soldier. He should be out in battle, should be leading his troops, but he's not. And you know, here's the deal. Is there, if for those of you who work in a corporation or company, big company, is there anything worse than the CEO when he, when he or she quits doing what they do? Because they just walk around and mess up everybody, don't they? I mean, I've seen that in corporations. A guy just like, well, you know, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to kind of walk around and look at everybody, you know, and kind of walk in and sit down in an office and hear all the administrators. And they love their CEO and everything, but it's like, sir, ma'am, what are you doing here? You're kind of messing everything up. And that's what David was. David's walking around the palace and all the button-down types and the administrators, the, you know, wingtip guys and, and the ladies who are working in the office. It's like, well, David, can we get you a cheer or something? And David knows that he's just a, he's a, he's dead weight. So he does something that's really dumb. He takes a mid-afternoon nap. That's not what I'm talking about. That's not dumb. And then he goes up on top of his palace. Now, let's look at verse 2 because it's going to take us to the second stage of an affair. Verse 2 says, late one afternoon after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. As he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. Now, through the years, ministers have looked at this story and said, Bathsheba's partly to blame because she's taking a bath and she's naked in front of David. You need to understand, people, when they took their baths, they took them on the rooftops of their house or in a courtyard in the middle. They weren't visible from street level. They wanted hot water like we want hot water, but they didn't have a, a, a knob or a, you know, they didn't have a, a lever with an H on it. So they put water out in the sunlight and heated it up. And if they were going to take a bath off, they'd take a bath on the rooftop of their palace. Now, here's the deal. When I get to heaven, if I'm wrong about this, it's okay for David to slap my hand because I don't want to accuse him of anything that's not right, but I want to be straight with us. You can't tell me David didn't know that was a possibility when he went up on top of his palace. He'd been on top of his palace before. He understood that he had a vantage point that other people did not have. And when he got up on top of his palace, there was a babe taking a bath. She was beautiful. And the stage number two that David got into was what I would call looking, looking. Hey, nobody's in bed with anybody yet. Nobody's got a hotel room. But David is is looking at this woman. Now, I'm going to broaden this out because I think it's more than just looking. I'm just going to call this chemistry. Because all of us know what it's like to experience this. Either seeing, you know, guys, we're more side-oriented. We live in a culture where we, it's a very sex-saturated culture. There are going to be some things that you're going to see. And I hope that you have a one-second rule or even a millisecond rule. Because occasionally you're going to see something you shouldn't see, something that's not appropriate. Man, you need to get that gaze turned like this. My grandmother used to tell me, you know, she said, you can't keep birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair. That's good advice. You know, you're, you're turning on the computer, get an email from somebody. Unfortunately, you know, you, don't, you didn't check it out clearly, and boom, that image hits, hits your eyes. You know, I mean, you've got to get that out. 
Or it just it could be something else. Maybe you know you're you're working at the office and there's a new guy in the office and and you know he makes you laugh and he's kind of funny and and he's kind of fun to be around. And next thing you know, you sort of have that little feeling in your stomach and you're thinking, you know, it's like every time he comes around, there's a little flutter there. And nobody's done anything wrong yet. You know, no, nobody's done anything that would that would cause your life to get all messed up. Just just a little chemistry there, a little chemistry. And that's where David was. Stage number two, David was looking at her. But now I want you to know quickly how things go to stage three. In, in, in the third stage, the Bible says he sent someone to find out who she was, and he was told she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Let's just call number three, checking it out. Um, you know what the difference between stage two and stage three is? Intentionality. When David sees this beautiful woman taking a bath... And he knows, he knows that he's got a hot neighbor. I mean, David is looking, shouldn't be looking. But now David goes to some of his, his, uh, his attendants and he says, I want you to go next door, find out who that woman is who lives next door. Now David has done something intentional. It's, now David has sent her an email saying, hey, I haven't seen you since high school. Wondering what you're up to. Or, you know, hey, you know, uh, listen, a bunch of us are going out to lunch today. You, you want to go out with us? You know what I'm saying? It's gone from chemistry to intentionality. And you know what a person could say? I haven't done a thing wrong yet. You know what? And then here's the obligatory one. Everybody does it. It's just being friendly. It's just, it's just checking things out. I mean, David could say, I haven't done anything wrong yet. just want to find out who this woman is. And the answer comes back. She's Bathsheba, and she is the wife of one of your soldiers. Well, you can read about stage number four of an affair in verse four. The Bible says David sent messengers to get her, and when she came to the palace, he slept with her. It was the physical act of sex. That's stage four. And and somebody could say, well, Mark, you're getting old and your math isn't good. You you told us there were six stages to an affair. It's all over now. We've been through all four, right? Oh, no, 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 no. There are two more stops on the trip, big ones. Hey, for those of you who are news junkies or political junkies, what's the, what's the old saying about politicians who get in trouble? It's not the act, it's the cover-up. Cover yeah. Because David now has an issue. Bathsheba texts him and says, David, I'm pregnant. And so David realizes he's got a thing on his hand. He's got to cover up. You show me somebody who's in sexual sin with someone who's not his or her wife or husband. I'll show you somebody who's lying because you've got to cover it up. And now David has a pregnancy to cover up. So David says, this is no problem for a king. You know, if you're in control, if, if, you're, the, if you're the man with the plan, if you're the woman who's, who's got, got, got her hand on the trigger, you know, if you're the person in control, you can just work it out. And David is king. He's over all the soldiers. You know, her husband is out in the field. He's fighting the war. David says, I got this thing all figured out. I'm going to bring her husband home. He's going to go home. He's going to sleep with his wife. This thing will all be covered up. And nobody will ever look at the king. And so David sends for Uriah, who was a noble soldier. He's one of David's best. And he brings Uriah back to the palace. And David, no doubt, covers him up with a lot of gooey praise and says what a great guy he is. Probably pins a medal on him and, and says, Uriah, we want to give you a little R&R, a little time off. Why don't you go home and, you know, relax and chill for a few days and just enjoy married life. And, and David's thinking, this is not going to be any problem. It's all worked out. But Uriah is a noble soldier. 
And when they go out to check on Uriah, he's not home with his wife. He's, he's in the hallway of the palace. And when they check it out, you know, Uriah, Uriah says, I can't go home with my wife and drink and eat and sleep with my wife when my friends are out there in battle. And he's saying, I, I just can't do that. And from this point on, you cannot miss in chapter 11 of 2 Samuel the juxtaposition of David's sleaziness and Uriah's nobility. You know, when we start going down a wrong path, remember last week I said it's a slippery slope. It's very hard to get back up. And David now has to cover it up. And his great plan didn't work. So he goes to the next stage of his plan. The Bible says, and this is hard to read, the Bible says that David brings Uriah into the palace and gets him drunk. And he's thinking that in getting him drunk, he will lose his inhibitions and his honor, and he'll go home and cover up David's sin. But even drunk, Uriah doesn't do that. And now the unthinkable. David writes out a letter to his commanding general, Joab. And he said, when you get into battle, listen to this. This is so awful. But time out for a moment. I'm giving away a future point. When any of us goes down this slippery slope, we lose touch with who we are. All of a sudden, we start acting and behaving in ways that are totally, totally inconsistent with who we have been and what we've said and what we've thought in the past. And now here is this guy who would take a pen one day and write, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. Now David takes his pen and he's writing out this message. He says to Joab, put Uriah in the front of the battle and then pull back from him to make sure he gets killed. Joab doesn't know what to do with the message, but he's obedient. He obeys his king. They get into battle. Uriah is up in the front of the battle. I mean, think about this. Uriah was actually the one to carry his own death warrant. So noble was he that he didn't even open the message to see that it sealed his own death. Here's Uriah at the front of the battle, and then when the rest of the troops pull back, the archers shoot and kill him. And Joab sends back a message to say to David, uh, Uriah is dead. But Joab is not sure what's going on with David, and, and he's afraid that David will get mad for losing one of his top soldiers. And so he sends back a message that says, I did what you told me to do. And listen to the callous nature of David's response to Joab. David said to Joab, soldiers die. One day one battle claims one, the next day another battle claims another, but don't worry about it, it's no problem. And now David feels like everything is covered up, and he does something that looks good on the surface, but totally cheesy. He marries Bathsheba. And everybody in town says, isn't that sweet? There's the king, a war bride, a war widow, bringing her into his home. After all, she's pregnant. She's going to have a baby. And the king marries her and brings her in. And, and everybody's saying, isn't that great? I mean, David, what a super, super, super guy you are. But you know what? <laughs> we haven't get, gotten to stage six yet, have we? Because stage six is picking up the tab. You know, there will always be a tab for this sin. And there are a couple of reasons why there will be. I mean, for for the one thing is, God will see to it. If you look at the end of chapter 11, after David marries Bathsheba and everything looks like it's great, there's just one little line at the end of the chapter. It just says, but the Lord was displeased with what David had done. You remember the saying, if mom ain't happy, ain't nobody happy? Amend that. If God ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. That's a fact. As I tell you all the time, nobody flips God off. I mean, if God's not happy, there are issues. And so as much as God loved David, God called David a man after his own heart. Because you know, somebody could say, well, oh, man, God's not going to do anything with me because I am a Christian. Listen, if God would do this to David, I'm sure he would do it to Mark. 
God was displeased. His pastor comes by to talk to him in chapter 12. And here's what the pastor tells him. From this time on, your family will live by the sword. Listen to that. Your family will live by the sword because you have despised me by taking Uriah's wife to be your own. So what kind of tab was it for David? I never know how to preach this. I wish you guys had a better preacher who could talk to you about it. I, just, I want to tell you this so much, and I struggle to, to know how to say it. When, when, when people think about, you know, God dealing with us for doing wrong, oftentimes they think that it's God just whipping us with a whip. But oftentimes, you know what God does? God just lets natural events take their course. Because we reap what we sow. You set the dominoes up, they'll fall in that pattern. And I honestly believe that that's what happened with David. It wasn't that God was there with a whip just to punish him for everything that David did that was wrong. I mean, clearly God did act in some ways that caused David some grief. But I honestly believe that what God did a lot of the time was just to let natural events take their course in David's family. Because moms and dads never forget this. Our kids are watching us and they will do what we do, not what we say. First thing that happened... Nathan told David, the baby that's conceived is not going to live. And that's not the reason why my children die or babies die. But in this particular case, God said, I'm going to take this baby home to heaven. And that broke David's heart. But that was just the beginning. Because what David was going to see play out in his life was going to be day after day and year after year of total misery in his home. He messed up somebody else's home. Now it was going to come to his home. Listen, and this is what I was trying to tell you a minute ago. David has a blended family on steroids because back in those days, men could have multiple wives. <laughs> and so you can imagine how that was, you know. And there, you know, David had all wives in the palace and they had kids. And so there were, you know, half brothers and half sisters and living in the palace. And it was, it was a challenge, no doubt, before this went down. But now things really got ugly. David, David's oldest boy, Amnon, who was the crown prince. This is wretched. I hate to say this, but I'm glad the kids are in kids' world. It, he started being attracted to his half-sister. And if you read the rest of the story, he raped his half-sister. David's son assaulted David's daughter. Well, what's going on? Why would Amnon do that to Tamar? Well, Amnon said, I've just been watching Daddy. You see what you want? You just take it. Well, another one of David's sons, Absalom, who was Tamar's full brother, was just furious because of what his half-brother had done to his sister. But he knew he couldn't do anything about it because, after all, he had to worry about David. And David, of course, cannot bring justice because of what David has done. And all this is just festering in his family. One day, Absalom sees his opportunity, and he kills Amnon. One of David's sons kills the crown prince. Then Absalom ingratiated himself with the people. And, you know, you know, after all, remember, his dad just saw something he wanted and he took it. Absalom said, hey, I want to be king. Why should my dad be king? He's got faults. And Absalom won the hearts of the people. And actually, David and his loyal followers had to leave Jerusalem and run for their lives because Absalom wanted to kill his own father and take his kingdom away. He just sees something you want, you take it. That's what daddy did. Finally, the tide of that particular battle turned, and David and his forces got the upper hand. And Absalom, he was a strange guy. I mean, you know, nothing wrong with having long hair, but Absalom did something that's kind of freaky. He piled it up on his head like women used to do back in the 60s, you know, for those of you who can remember that kind of thing. And he was riding his mule, and he went under a tree, and the tree the branch of the tree caught his hair, and the mule kept on walking, and Absalom was swinging by his hair. 
And David had told Joab, the same guy who put Uriah up in the front of the battle, David had given his instructions to Joab, and he said, listen, please, when you find my son, treat him gently. No doubt David was thinking, my son did what he did because he saw me do what I did. And I don't want him to be killed. I don't want him to be hurt. And he said to Joab, when you find him, deal gently with him. But when Absalom saw him, I mean, after all, what did Absalom learn from his king? You see something you want to do? You just do it. And even though David had said to deal gently, Absalom made sure that darts went through uh, uh, Joab made sure that darts went through Absalom's liver. And David had to cry one more time for one more funeral of one member of his family. Picking up the tab. I, I know what you're asking. It's what I would ask. Why would anybody do this? You know, when you watch the movies, you watch television, you listen to the songs and stuff, and people like drift in and out of affairs. It sounds so cool, but I mean, talk to anybody who's made the round trip. Some of you have done that here today, and you would say, go, Mark, go, tell them. It's ugly. It starts off looking like it's great and fun, but it doesn't end that way because you have to pick up the tab. Why would anybody do it when so many do? Well, it's because that when a person gets on the slippery slope, they believe two lies. The first lie goes something like this. I can manage this. I've talked to hundreds of people probably through my career who have gotten into affairs, and and I've pleaded with them. Somebody might be at stage three. Somebody might be at stage four. And I've pleaded with them. I said, stop now. And you know what they always tell me? It's always, it just like eats me up. But they always tell me the same thing. And And it can be in different language, but it's, Mark, I'm in control. I've got this covered. You don't need to talk to me. You don't know this situation. This lady that I'm in the affair with, she understands me. I understand her. It's not gonna wreck my world. Trust me, I'm in control. Could I tell you, all of us here today, anybody who gets into an affair, I wanna tell you, you are not in control for a lot of reasons. For one thing, it'll always burn out of control. There's a point at which you'll have control of it. There's a point at which you can kind of manage everything and keep your wife from knowing and her husband from knowing and keep your kids from knowing about it. There's a point at which you can manage it, but I've watched it and I've watched it. It always burns out of control. And here's why. It's because there's too many people involved. It's not just you and the person in the affair. It's his wife, it's her husband, it's their children, it's your children, it's your friends, it's the people that you work with, and there are just so many people involved that it's a lie to tell myself or yourself, I can manage this. And there's another reason why nobody can manage it. You know, know, when a person goes into an affair, they go into it for selfish reasons. Nobody gets into an affair to bless somebody. I mean, nobody says, well, hey, you know what? I just want to help everybody in the world. I just want to be a blessing. I just want to do things for people, so I'm going to get into an affair. Nobody does that. People get into an affair because they're selfish. Takes two people to have an affair. Two selfish people. They both have their interests. At first, those interests can seem to be going down a parallel track, but I can tell you, I've watched it time after time, when there comes a point when those interests don't go down a parallel track. Ever see Fatal Attraction? They had that right. There will always be a point where he's not going to leave his family. She's not going to leave her marriage. And then it turns nasty and ugly. So could I just say it's a lie for any person to think, I got this under control because it's never under control. The second lie that people tell themselves when they start down the slippery slope, I got to tell you a hokey story from my childhood before I get to this one. I grew up in the southeast side of Fort Worth, Texas, actually in a little rural suburb called Forest Hill. And unlike Kansas, when we use terms like hill and mountain, there actually was a hill there. 
And, and there were descending streets off Forest Hill. I lived at the bottom of the hill on a street called, believe it or not, Wichita. I lived on Wichita Street. That's a fact. And, and so I used to love to ride my bike. And you've got to be really old to know what I'm talking about. But I, I used to have one of those bikes, you know, with high-rise handlebars and a banana seat. And I thought I was evil Knievel, and I was ready to jump the Snake River Canyon. So I, I would go to the top of Forest Hill on, on the street that was called Deval Court. We called it Devil Court because it was straight down. And I would get up there with my bicycle, and I would start pedaling. But about halfway down, you couldn't pedal anymore because the pedals were just going so fast, couldn't keep my feet on them. Now, at the bottom of the hill was Wichita Street. Wichita Street was an extremely busy street. People drove 40, 50, 60 miles an hour on Wichita. My parents said, do not go out into Wichita Street. Don't go out at all. They were scared that I was going to get run over. So I was sort of semi-obeying, and I would get to the bottom of the hill, ride my bicycle so fast I couldn't pedal it, and there was a ditch there. I would run off to the side into the ditch and jump off the bike. It's a miracle I didn't break my neck. My parents never knew about this till last night. They're 83 years old, and they heard about it for the very first time. But I can't tell you how many times I've sat in my office and I've thought about myself riding down the hill on that bicycle, running it into the ditch and jumping off because so many people basically say, yeah, Mark, I'm going down the slippery slope, but I'm going to, here's the second lie, I'm going to get off before I hit the wall. You know, nobody does. I mean, I, I don't know of anybody who expects to pay the full, go the full ride. Nobody wants to go to six. And a lot of people don't even think they'll go to four. They're just saying, well, hey, Mark, you know, I, I'm not, we're not going to go to bed together. Just sort of, you know, just enjoying a little infatuation and everything. Makes me feel young again, reclaiming my childhood and all this. But the truth of the matter is, if you ever say, listen to me, please, if you ever listen to a minister, and it's not just adultery, it's anything that's self-destructive. If you ever say to, your mind, to yourself, I'm going to stop down here, it's over. Game, set, match. There's only one time to stop. If a person's going down the wrong slope, what do they need? Because I could be talking to, and my guess is today, every one of us is going to deal with at least one of these stages. At some point in our life, we're going to stop doing what we do. Or maybe we'll get into that chemistry stage with somebody. And we might even get to the place where we're checking it out, and it could get even worse than that. But my guess is every one of us here today is going to have some kind of issue with what I'm talking about. What do you need when you get on the slope? Because I could be talking to somebody and you're there today. Two things. And I'll give you these quickly. Number one. You need somebody to hold up a mirror. Anytime any of us gets in these six stages, we lose sight of who we are. Great day. I've talked to so many people in affairs, and I know that's not their values. I mean, six months before, they would have had a cow if anybody had ever told them they would do this because they would say, that's not me. Somewhere along the line, they lose sight of who they are. And that's what happened with David. Unfortunately, it happened pretty late in the game. But David's pastor, Nathan, came by, and, and, and Nathan didn't really go right to the heart of the matter, but he just said, David, I need to tell you a story. He said, in your kingdom, there's a little town here, and a little deal went down, and I need to tell you about it. And so David loved his pastor, and he said, okay, tell me the story. Nathan said, well, there's this poor guy who lives in the town, and, 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 and they have a, a little lamb. And the lamb is like a pet, like a member of the family, you know. When, when, the, when, they, when, they're, when they're drinking something, they give the lamb a drink out of their cup. When they're eating something, they let the lamb eat, just like some of you guys do with your pets. You know, we we'll let the lamb eat out of, out of, out of their. They let the lamb eat out of their plate. They loved it. They held it in their lap. Man's grandkids enjoyed the lamb. Guy across the street, he's got thousands of sheep. David, 
Well, the rich guy, he had a friend from high school come by, hadn't seen him in a long time. He wanted to make dinner for him. So you know what he did? Instead of taking one of his own lambs, he went across the street and took the lamb that this family had for a pet, and he barbecued the lamb for his friend. And about this time, David's blood pressure was hitting about 240 over 120. And David said, that guy's going down. He's dying. I don't know who he is. I don't know what his background. I don't care who he is. He's going to die. And oh, by the way, I mean, David was so mad he was irrational. He said before he dies, he's going to pay back fourfold. That was the law. And that's when Nathan held up the mirror and said, David, I'm talking about you. David didn't see himself anymore. Like Dorian Gray, he'd lost track of who he was. And Nathan held up the mirror. That's what I'm doing today for all of us. I'm holding up the mirror saying, listen, do what you do. Stay doing what you do. Stay focused. Don't start down the slope like we talked about last week. There's a second thing that I need to say to you, and this is so awesome. If wherever you are, if, if you're headed down any kind of bad road in your life, there is only one place to stop, and that is here. There's only one time to stop, and that's now. Wherever I found you, I may have found you at stage one. I may have found you at stage six. All I'm saying is wherever you are, stop now. You never stop down the road. You never stop here. Because if you say to yourself, I'm going I'm to contain this at this point, I promise you, you will not do it. I promise you, there's only one place to stop, and that's now. I'm talking to a lot of us here today, and I know what's in your heart. You're saying, Mark, there was a point in my life where I went too far with something. And maybe it wasn't, I didn't go all the way to four, but I went all the way to three. Or, or maybe you went all the way to six. Or, or maybe it's not just adultery, maybe it's something else. And you're saying, Mark, what, what, how does God feel about me now? It's so important because I've talked to a lot of people who are down the road and they're saying, well, Mark, I guess I may as well take the whole trip because God now, I've already messed it up so bad, God surely doesn't love me anymore. And I know God's going to get me, but I guess I may as well go and enjoy myself. Joel, chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. If these are not part of your life, you need to find these verses, and then you just need to put your arms around them and hold them and love these two verses. I want you to listen to what God says. People of Israel had gone way away from God, and God was getting ready to judge them. But in the very, before the first judgment blow had fallen, God had the prophet Joel say these things. I should tell you before I get started here that when people did wrong in Bible days, they would tear their clothes as a sign of their grief. But a lot of times, that was just an outward show. So here's what God had Joel say. Are you listening? Please. Don't tear your clothing in your grief. Tear your hearts instead. Return to the Lord your God because he is merciful and compassionate, slow to get angry, and filled with unfailing love. Does that sound like somebody that you need to say, man, he's out to get me. I may as well run the table. I mean, listen to what God is saying. Don't come back to me. God is filled with mercy, filled with compassion, filled with a love that will not fail, slow to get angry. And then listen to this powerful line. He is eager to relent and not punish. Did you know that was your God? I mean, God is up in heaven saying, please don't make me do this. Please don't let me bring... I mean, God is just looking for the first sign that says, okay, I want to relent. That's what I want to do. I don't want to bring judgment in your life. I want to back off. I don't want to hurt you. God is eager to relent and not punish. And then for anyone who says, well, I think I'll check it out a little further, listen to verse 14. It starts with a question. Who knows? 
Maybe he will give you a reprieve, sending you a blessing instead of this curse. Ladies and gentlemen, I love those two verses, and I want them to be part of Mark Hoover's life. Because if there's anything wrong in my life, I want to stop it now. Because who knows? Maybe I can avert disaster. Who knows? Maybe instead of putting a curse over me, maybe God will put a blessing over me. That is what God is saying. Wherever you are, stop now. Don't go another inch down bad road. Because if he comes to God, who knows? Maybe he'll send you a blessing instead of this curse. He's eager to relent and not punish. You saw the beginning of a story on video. Let's watch the end. I want to make sure, I want to speak to the audience, to people who, maybe a person whose spouse has said, I want to divorce you. I want to tell you that the day my husband walked in our home and said, I'm not taking this lying down. I'm not letting Satan have my family. I will not give you what you want. I will not give you a divorce. Of course, I probably reacted like a jerk to him to that. But in my heart, I'm thinking, yes, this is the man I want to be married to. I want that. And so very quickly then I started backtracking. Thankfully I'm married to a Christian man who called people in as reinforcement to speak truth into my life. If there is sin in someone's life close to you and they are in denial, is to it's think of flashlights and just shine a bunch of Christian light on it so that truth can be known. And as the word says, the truth will set you free. And so I had a bunch of people shine flashlights of Christian love. Our home team was awesome. There were um, namely three couples who greatly impacted us. So just the healthy love that I felt from them, that they were going to support us. I know we just blew them out of the water when we told them what had been going on in our lives. And their response was, okay, well, let's just keep walking together. We're going we're gonna to be fine. If you're trying to do it all alone, you will set yourself up for Satan to come in and say, Oh, she said she didn't love you. Don't you think you ought to leave? If you want a good, strong, godly family and marriage, then you've got to fight for it at times. And if we're going to be Christians, if, if we are going to ask for forgiveness, we have to forgive. And it's the most painful thing I've ever had to do. But... If you choose your wife and your family, you have to work at that. You have to work through that. You're not going to get to where you want to get just by pulling the ripcord. You're not going to be happy visiting your kids twice a week. We just experienced something so beautiful a few weeks ago. Our oldest child learned to ride a bike without his training wheels. I just stood there watching my husband and I was so filled up. I was so thankful in that moment that my family was still together. Our children are so precious. They are a gift. Each child is a gift and I was about to rip apart their bonds with their dad and with me and us as a family. God continues to remind me, look what I did for you. And I'm so thankful. Our marriage today is amazing. It amazes me how I can now see what it's supposed to be. God created marriage. You're going to have problems. You may be hurt so bad you want to run out. But you have to claim the truth of what God says you are, of what he says he can do for you, 
when my thoughts come of the other person or when I'm considering that I'm not so happy with my spouse, I just have to remember the truth. I have to say, God, I'm going to trust you. You've done so much for me. I'm going to keep on keeping on. I'm going to be the best wife I can be. I know he's being, he's doing a great job being my husband. If we keep focusing on not what the world tells us we should be, but the wife that God says I can be, I'm going to shoot for that, and I know that's going to be enough for him. Would you just pray with me for a moment? You know, one of the great joys I have as being a man who God has called to bring his message is I have the privilege of getting to tell you that no matter where you've been or what you've done, God will forgive you right now where you are. It may be the sin that we've talked about today. may have nothing to do with that at all. But no matter what you've done, the one fact is every one of us is a sinner. And the Bible tells us, and this is what the Scriptures say. I'm going to quote directly. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all, A-L-L, all sin. Isn't that great? You can come to God right now, and the Bible, I, I was reading in the Bible this week where the Bible says God tramples our sins under his feet, and he throws them in the deepest part of the ocean. And you say, well, Mark, I don't feel like I'll ever be innocent again. I'll tell you what, the blood of Christ can make you innocent. That's why Jesus died as he did on the cross. He gave, the blood is his life. He gave his life for you and me. And if you've never asked him into your heart and life, you can do that right now. God's, remember, he's eager. He's eager to receive you. I'm going to pray a prayer, and you can pray it with me. And you don't have to use my words if you don't want to, but if, if, if you want, you can say this from your heart and mean it, and God will hear your prayer. Here we go. Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I believe you died on the cross for my sin. I ask you to forgive me and save me. Come into my life. Make me a new person. In Jesus' name, amen. I know I need to talk quickly because our time is really shot this morning. But could I just say this? If you prayed that prayer with me, would you take your worship folder? If you'll put your name and address on the card, check the box that says you pray with me. I'll send you one of these this week. It's got some DVDs and great stuff to help you know for sure that you are forgiven. Just some great resources to help you take your first steps in following Jesus. If you don't want to wait for me to send it in the mail, you can bring your card straight back through the middle of those doors to guest services. All you have to do is, you don't have to make a speech or anything. Just hand them your card, and they'll give you one of these. You can take it home with you today. I'm going to ask our ushers to come forward to receive our weekend offering. And while the ushers are coming, I'm just going to go through some stuff real quick. We still have two more weekends of Love Affair. Next weekend is a real fun message called Prenup. If you're single, have kids, love anybody who's single, think you might be single again someday, um, you, please be here for this service. It's kind of, we're going to have a lot of fun, really important stuff about knowing how to find the right person and being the right person for somebody else. And then after that, uh, many of us today in, in our culture have blended families. It's a real challenge to, to have a great blended family, but we're going to talk about that in a message called Happily Ever After again two weeks from this, week, from this weekend. Also, one more thing before we receive the offering, you're going to see this in the announcement video, but New Spring Church has participated with the greening of Greensburg with Channel 12 and also with uh, Treerific Landscaping. 
You know, when the tornado came through Greensburg, did so much damage. And one of the things that a tornado does is just take away so many of the trees. And so, you know, we're, we're going to be part of that. It, we're going to, next Saturday morning, if you'll meet here at 7 o'clock, if you're 15 or older, bring your shovel and your gloves, and we'll drive out to Greensburg together. We'll have transportation for you, and we'll plant those trees out there. It's going to be a lot of fun. So think about that. There'll be a little bit more in just a moment. And let's receive now the Lord's offering and tithes. Father, thank you again for letting us be here today. Thanks for what your Holy Spirit has done with us this day in these three services. And now we ask your blessing upon the offering. Please bless those who are giving. Lord, let them know they're changing the world and that you can't be outgiven. In Jesus' name, amen.